Part One, Chapter Eleven of the Luggage of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Luggage of Life by Frank W. Borum. Part One, Chapter Eleven. Sunset on the Sea. Uncle Tom and Eva were seated on a little mossy seat in an arbor at the foot of the garden. It was Sunday evening, and Eva's Bible lay open on her knee. She read, and I saw a sea of glass mingled with fire. Tom, said Eva, suddenly stopping and pointing to the lake, there it is. What, Miss Eva? Don't you see there? said the child, pointing to the glassy water which, as it rose and fell, reflected the golden glow of the sky. There's a sea of glass mingled with fire. The exegesis of Mrs. Stowe's frail little heroine is probably as near the truth as our best expositors are likely to carry us. I have known what it is to be surrounded by magnificent and mountainous icebergs in the southern ocean. I have been an awe-stricken admirer of the grandeur of a thunderstorm on the equator. I have seen the seas in a passion as they responded to a gale off Cape Horn, but I must confess that one of the most splendid and impressive spectacles it has ever been my lot to witness was a tropical sunset at sea. The huge and angry sun went down like a ball of livid fire. The sky seemed to have broken into flame. The sea was a sea of blood. The very foam on the tips of the waves was tinged with crimson. The outlook from the deck of the vessel was unforgettable, the kind of thing to haunt you in your dreams. Everything was weird, awful, unearthly, and as I gazed upon the strange mingling of flood and flame, I thought of John. The exiled apostle sat among the beetling cliffs of Patmos after having borne the burden and heat of the toilsome convict day, and at evening he gazed wearily and wistfully westwards towards those teeming centres of civilization, into which he had hoped to carry the story of the cross. And, even as he gazed, the cold Aegean sea flamed with the glory of an oriental sunset, and he beheld at his feet a sea of glass mingled with fire. The fact is that the seeming antagonisms of life are not so incongruous as we, in our superficial moments, are apt to suppose. We are in imminent peril of reaching false conclusions through taking it for granted that the other side of truth is always a lie. We forget that fire and water are in greater concord than we assume. Truth consists not in a part but in the whole, and the separate parts of that whole are often apparently inconsistent. Professor Henry Drummond has shown us that the time was when the science of geology was interpreted exclusively in terms of the action of a single force, fire. Then followed the theories of an opposing school, who saw all the Earth's formations to be the result of water. Any biology, any sociology, any evolution, adds the professor, which is based on a single factor, is as untrue as the old geology. Geologians never approximated to the real truth, until they saw 
a sea of glass mingled with fire. And from those ancient blunders of the geologians, our theologians, if they be discreet, may still learn much. Knowledge is not the monopoly of any one of her numerous schools. The fact is that truth is always and everywhere friendly to truth. It therefore follows, as the night the day, that truth need never be afraid of truth. One man may interpret truth in the terms of a sea of glass. Another may interpret truth in the terms of a flame of fire. A superficial hearer, listening to the two interpretations, will throw up his hands in horror. Babel and confusion, he will cry, which is true and which is false. But a wise man will listen reverently to both preachers and will see that a sea of glass may quite easily and quite naturally be mingled with fire. A few years ago there awoke in Europe a spirit of scientific research. The geologist took his hammer and began to search among the strata for truth. The astronomer swept the heavens with his telescope in his quest for truth. The antiquarian and historian went off together to the east with a spade and began to dig in Palestine, Egypt, Asia Minor and Assyria for truth and there were excellent souls in all the churches who cried for mercy. Stop, they cried. You will find something among stones or stars that will stagger our faith or shatter our serenity. You will dig up something in some lone Syrian town that will contradict our Bibles. But science would not stop. Investigation and scrutiny hastened forward. And with what result? We see now that Whilst science appeared to our grandsires like a sea of glass, as compared with revelation, which was like a flame of fire, the two are not contradictory or antagonistic. They harmonize and blend, and we today see a sea of glass mingled with fire. It is the glory of the Christian faith that it is immense enough to be able to contain within itself aspects and elements that at first sight seemed strangely conflicting. I heard a preacher exulting in the tenderness and beauty of God's infinite love. The very same day, I heard another speak of the severity and exactness of God's infinite justice. Surely he was speaking of a different God. But no, it is the same God, but such a God. There is no conflict nor confusion. We are simply gazing at a sea of glass mingled with fire. He is a just God and a Saviour, and those who know him and worship him are like unto him. Dean Stanley has a most exquisite passage in which he extols these diverse qualities in the life of Arnold. He describes the perfect ease and delicacy with which Arnold revelled in the atmosphere of the home. Those who had only seen the stern schoolmaster in the halls of rugby scarcely recognised him as he romped with the merry children by the hearth. And those who had only known him in the home, a man so engaging, so winsome, so delightful, listened as to a strange language when others referred to his strictness and austerity. Yet, says Stanley, both were perfectly natural to him the severity and the playfulness expressing, 
each in its turn, the earnestness with which he entered into the business of life, and the enjoyment with which he entered into its rest. In a word, his character, which was perhaps more reverenced than that of any man of his time, was like a sea of glass mingled with fire. The splendour of the sunset on the sea has a very practical application to the testimony and teaching of all the Christian churches. Let us take, by way of illustration, two extreme cases. I repeat that both instances are necessarily and happily extreme. A fine church, splendidly upholstered and appointed, but only moderately attended. Its pulpit is regarded as the last word in scholarship, and that is as it should be. But it is said to be cold. The ministry is forbidding. The atmosphere lacks cordiality. On the way home, the worshippers are arrested by a spectacle so remote from that which they have just departed that they might almost mistake it for a representation of a different religion. A street preacher screams and yells in a frenzied monotone. His theology is almost brutal. His illustrations are shocking. His gesticulation is terrifying. His grammar causes even the children to smile. But his arresting passion, his grim earnestness, his transparent sincerity, his vivid realisation of the awful realities of which he speaks, these are beyond question. If only the other preacher had caught something of his intensity, and if only he had taken the pains to acquire something of that preacher's erudition, what scenes might have been witnessed both from the cushioned pew and from the corner of the pavement? As it is, both are largely ineffective. The one is like the sea, deep but cold. The other is like the sun, blazing but wearying. The seer at Patmos saw that the ideal lies not in the lowering of the scholarship of the one, nor in the reduction of the fervour of the other, but in the mingling of the two, a sea of glass mingled with fire. The problem is not one of subtraction, but of addition. It is said that young men sometimes enter theological seminaries overflowing, like volcanoes, with fires of enthusiasm that they can neither hide nor contain. And it is said, too, that they frequently emerge from those colleges like icebergs, very impressive but very cold. It is usually their own fault when such moral tragedies occur. At least it is a thousand shames things should so fall out. The youthful fires ought to be fed and purified by the addition of knowledge. The minister, as he waves farewell to his alma mater, should carry with him his youthful ardour, absolutely undiminished and unabated, with all his scholastic acquirements as a clear addition. Of all the rites and ordinances of Christian worship, the same may be said. Our services and assemblies are intended to be seas of glass mingled with fire. Solemnity must be there, and dignity but there must be emotion and deep feeling as well. Splendid music must be shot through with spiritual praise. Stately eloquence must be glorified by stirring passion. 
all the externals and ceremonials of worship are in themselves as cold as icicles. The most beautiful and impressive ordinances are simply seas of glass till they are mingled with fire. It is only as they are made luminous with intense spiritual significance that they reveal their glory to the eyes of men. Nothing is more flat, stale and unprofitable than an argument concerning the mere technicalities and externals of an ordinance. Yet nothing is more inflaming to all that is best within us than the actual commemoration of these lovely rites. Baptism, apart from the profound spiritual sanctions with which the scriptures invest it, is a sea of glass. But with the realisation of those inner mysteries and experiences, the waters flame and burn. Paul tells us that the same is true of the Lord's Supper. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. To such a one, that is to say, the elements are dumb, the waters do not glow with fire. He sees the sea, but not the sun. Little Eva and Uncle Tom were, therefore, unconsciously embarking on a voyage amidst the eternal verities as they gazed upon the sunlit lake at New Orleans on that beauteous and tranquil Sunday evening. And we shall be permanently enriched if we catch something of the radiant significance of the vision that they saw. Our seas and suns, our floods and flames, must mingle. End of part one, chapter eleven.